Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, December 22nd, and we're looking back at the year in tech. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com senior tech specialist, Evan New. Evan, this is the last IF show before the Christmas holiday. What are you doing with the family over the weekend? I'm actually flying to Texas to spend a couple weeks uh, with family there, so I'll be I'll be out of. I won't be working next week, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate take, the heads take up. Some time off. <laughs> but are you going to be? You're going to be online a little bit during that period, I assume. That's the beauty. Yeah, of I'll be work. around a little bit, but I'm not going to you know do a whole lot. Yeah, this time, is, need some time off every now and then. We have contractors all over the world, and that's one of the luxuries of being remote. Is uh, you, you can kind of be anywhere. I'm going to be kind of taking advantage of that myself, going home to New Jersey. Uh, going to celebrate the holidays with my mom there, and then hang out with my dad in Delaware for a little bit, do a little bit of work. So that should be nice. Uh, producer Austin Morgan, what's the plan for you over the Christmas? Well, you kind of get like a whole break because we've pre-taped all of next week's episodes. Yeah, I will not be here next week. That'll <laughs> be nice. But I will still be in this area. Uh, we usually do like breakfast and dinner at somebody's house. But this year we're going to a bottomless mimosa brunch and then having a party. So that'll be fun, I guess. It sounds now, like it sounds like there aren't any kids in the family. Not anymore. My brother <laughs> just turned twenty-one this year, so it sounds like things are changing. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty good time. That's uh, that's a fun Christmas tradition. Yeah, I I'm mean, gonna be curious. I can to get see, behind it. I'm gonna be curious to see if that happens next year. That'll you know? be that'll be the real question. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not whether you do that one year; yeah, it's whether you decide to do it again. And how everybody feels on the 26th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thankfully, you know, Christmas holiday is a nice time to kind of relax. And just hang out with your family. Um, so we are wrapping up the year in 2017. This is the last recap show for Industry Focus, and it's the last show uh, before the holiday. It's it's the last like real traditional show that we're going to be doing this year. Next week we have a fun little treat for you guys. Uh, a little bit more on that later on in the show. But Evan, looking at tech in 2017, I think one of the big big things, particularly from you and me as two fairly big Apple fans, was the release of the iPhone 10. Uh, this was one of the biggest stories of the year, and it's something that we spent a decent amount of time talking about, but I think it's something that's worth revisiting just because of what it might say about the future of AR. Oh, and definitely a huge interest. I mean, Google put out their kind of top search results for the year you know, recently, and iPhone 8 was like the number one, but of course that was before the names were official, so everyone was kind of casually referring to the next iPhone as iPhone 8 before you knew what it was going to be called, and then of course iPhone 10 becomes pretty search, you know, gets a lot of search volume <laughs> after they announce it. But, you know, combined, I mean, I definitely think it was certainly one of the most, you know, highly anticipated, you know, products this year, particularly being like the 10th anniversary uh, edition since, you know, they, they released the first iPhone in 2007. So, you know, it's a big milestone to make it 10 years and ship, you know, over a billion devices. And they had some features in there that were pretty interesting. I mean, you look at the edge-to-edge screen. I'm going to put that in quotes, given some of the uh, some of the hoopla about the tab on the, the notch. <laughs> the notch, yes, uh, on the iPhone 10, and how it is not truly edge-to-edge. Um, you know, there was obviously a lot of headlines about its pretty high price tag as well. But I think when I look at this device and its launch, the thing that has me really excited and, and really interested in where this kind of puts, uh, you know, consumer electronics going forward and software going forward is the A11 Bionic chip and that loaded front-facing camera that they put into the this phone. Yeah, the notch. <laughs> all the stuff all the stuff in the notch. The true depth <laughs> camera system. Yeah, it's pretty pretty exciting stuff that they're putting. I mean, they mentioned that it's like one of the most densely packed areas they've put into any product in terms of the amount of technology that they're putting in there. Um, so I mean, lots of really lots of stuff going on there. 
Yeah, I think there are what six different components in there right now. You've got like an infrared camera, flood illuminator, the dot projector, which is insane if you haven't seen a visual of what that actually looks like uh, as a you know the things that you can't see happening uh, in front of you. So so there's a lot going on there, and and all of these components, all of these kind of hardware upgrades will really kind of set the stage for Face ID and for 3D sensing for Apple and for consumers moving forward. I think it's a pretty big, um, I think there's a lot of potential in this going forward because, you know, so the the actual, what, what they call the dot projector is what's called the vertical cavity surface emitting laser or VIXEL. <laughs> I think we've I think we talked about these before on the show, but, um, and the Vix, VIXELs have been around for decades. So the technology itself is not new, but they've traditionally been used in kind of like a bunch of these different applications, including like laser mice, you know, which have been around forever and uh, lots of these little things, but no one's ever really thought about putting them to this extent and this volume uh, for these types of 3D sensing applications. So I think it's really exciting. And I mean, the VIXEL industry, again, it's very, it's been around for a long time, but it's still not um, huge in terms of the volumes that it can pump out. So that's why Apple is really betting a lot. And, you know, they announced a deal earlier this month to, to award one of their suppliers with this, you know, $390 million to basically help them ramp their capacity because Apple said that in the fourth quarter of this year, in 2017, the current quarter, they're going to be buying 10 times as many Vixels as the entire worldwide capacity could have supplied <laughs> maybe a year ago. Wow. So they obviously have humongous ambitions. And that's only just for the iPhone 10, right? Uh, so if iPhone 10 alone is already basically 10 times you know, the industry's worldwide capacity, and if you think about you know, their future ambitions, because certainly once Apple comes out with something, they try to bring it to the rest of their lineup. So, you know, next year they might try to bring it to iPad Pros. You can easily see them maybe even trying to do it into Macs eventually with Face ID and some interesting applications there. Uh, but, you know, so it, it, this is just a beginning very much so. So, I mean, they're going to need a ton of Vixels going forward, and they're starting to really to help suppliers put that capacity into place, which I think is a really smart move from a supply chain perspective. And the reason that I think this is such an interesting story and this is such a notable product release is, uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about augmented reality for quite some time. And when you see a maker of one of the most adopted pieces of hardware deciding to put all these components and all this functionality into the hands of anyone that upgrades to their latest phone, that kind of sets the stage for some pretty amazing opportunities in AR. You know, we talked about how Face ID is kind of the immediate benefit to this. But I think you look at something like Face ID, you look at something even like the uh, the filters on Snap's app, where you know you have like people making crazy faces and having the software respond to it. That is very early, very primitive AR, uh, and it kind of familiarizes people with you know what it's capable of. But it is certainly not the last application of that. I think more and more we're going to see augmented reality become really useful, frankly, for people not only just entertaining. Right, exactly. I think I definitely agree with you. I think that's going to be like the real big piece of this, and that's why Tim Cook is so excited about AR. He's been talking about AR for years, and only this year have they really kind of officially announced AR Kit and iOS 11 to really uh, provide these tools for developers. And yeah, it starts off with these kind of like these photo video filters that you know are kind of fun, but not everyone uses them. Um, but you know, if you start to actually talk about practical applications, there's already tons of really interesting you know, things out there. I mean, there's yeah, it sounds kind of you know boring, but it's really kind of cool if you've played with them. The, some of these like measurement apps that use augmented reality on your phone that are out there now, they have apps that you can like measure the dimensions of a room just by pointing your phone at the corners of the room, and like you can make measurements, like real time measurements in real life. 
levels, like all sorts of these like little things. But those are just some examples. But I think that there there really is incredible potential for AR, just kind of when you start thinking about more practical mainstream applications. Yeah, the way I like to think about AR is if you could take the filter that you're kind of currently looking through the world in and kind of like video gamify it and and have like, you know, vectors or different meters or things like that, that is kind of what the potential for this technology has. I you know, I kind of envision something where you have a kind of real-time updating in front of you instruction manual if you are trying to do, you know, some sort of really simple repair on your car simply by holding your phone over the uh, the hood as it's up and kind of having a better sense of what you're looking at. I, I think that in addition to like those room measurement type things you're talking about, there are just a lot of really compelling use cases. We're obviously in the very early innings of that, but getting people a little bit more familiar with the technology and also just getting it in their hands is kind of a big step forward. Right. And I, I kind of agree with Tim Cook in the term, in the sense that I think AR has more potential than VR for these mainstream types of applications. Because VR, you know, it was just, you know, certainly you know, intricately linked to AR, uh, virtual reality. You know, the it, it's right now is very focused on gaming. And of course, gaming is a huge market, but it's still kind of like a niche, you know, not a mainstream thing. And Whereas AR really has much more potential to, to affect the average consumer's lives, that they can deliver this kind of actionable information in a seamless way on top of you know what you're already doing, versus VR, which I mean Tim, Tim Cook's whole argument is that VR is kind of isolating, whereas Facebook wants to make VR this social experience where everyone's in the same virtual world, and you know these are all kind of visions of how things will play out in the, in the years ahead. So certainly you know, too early to say which which way it's going to go, but. You know, they, they do have kind of different visions of this technology. So speaking of AR and VR, you know, we just talked about how smartphones kind of prime people for this a little bit, but that category isn't necessarily what's going to be the big driver of virtual and augmented reality headsets, at least going forward, according to some data from and projections from IDC, a research firm in the tech space. And so they just kind of take a scan of the current marketplace and they say screenless viewers. And so basically these are all these uh, headsets that run thanks to smartphone tech. That segment currently makes up about 60% of the AR VR headset market. And you can basically think of that as like the Samsung Gear VR, where you pop your phone in and that is what you're using as like the main tech powering your experience. It's just when you strap a phone to your face. That's, that's yeah. the way I like to refer to it. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I mean, the, the, it's a huge part of the market because those things are pretty cheap, right? I mean, like everyone basically has a phone nowadays. And, you know, these accessories cost maybe 50 to $100, so it's very cheap to, to buy one of these things. But basically all it does is it straps your phone to your face, which I think is a little silly. And I, I've tried a couple of these applications. I'm not really sold. It's not a great, super compelling experience. But it's really cheap, and it's, it's experimental. lets you test drive it and just kind of get a taste of it. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the phase that the market's in. So it, it makes perfect sense that that's kind of currently dominating shipments because they're cheap and anyone can try it. Yeah, right now I think we're in the like minimum viable product that gets the technology into the most people's hands phase of things. Um, what's interesting is you know, maybe IDC sees things kind of the same way that you do, Evan, but they look at the current market and there was just under 10 million shipments in 2017. That's expected to grow to just over 59 million by 2021, which is a kager of 59%, by the way, which is insane. Um, and they expect most of the growth to come from these more involved standalone and tethered head-mounted displays. So, like these screenless viewers that do not use your smartphone, but instead are running off of a gaming platform or a computer, and frankly, are just a lot more expensive. Right, and there's a big milestone for this market. Um, in the third quarter, there were a million uh, head headsets shipped 
Um, and that was the first time the market had ever cumulatively you know, shipped over a million units in a quarter. And that was led by um, Sony's PlayStation VR, which you know, it's kind of the same thing. Like A lot of people have PlayStation 4s that, do, that will do most of the actual heavy lifting on the technical side. So you just buy this other accessory that's a couple hundred dollars, and then you can have, have a pretty good experience. Um, so they're the, currently the market leader in terms of unit volumes. And Facebook is second with its Oculus subsidiary. And Oculus you know, ties into a PC. So you know, if you don't have a PC that can handle this stuff, you have to go out and buy one. And that can be, you know, seven hundred to thousand dollars. So if you don't have any type of equipment and you want to buy the Oculus set with a PC, it's you know, it can easily be a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. Which, yeah, not everyone's going to put that kind of money down for a technology that they're not too familiar with, and there may not be a whole lot of great content for. Um, but it's definitely getting started. And I think, and I think a big part of it this year has been price cuts. I mean, these companies have been really being aggressive with reducing prices over time. And of course, the natural effect of that is to sell more. Looking at the investing angle here, Evan, you know, we we name dropped a couple companies in that discussion. You know, with Sony and and looking at uh, Oculus's parent, Facebook, I don't see VR as something that's going to really meaningfully move the needle for them anytime soon, at least. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of those long-term vision things. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has talked about this kind of. It sounds kind of like sci- out of a sci-fi movie, but you know, we're, he's imagining this future where if you need to go to the doctor, you go in VR, and then I don't know how they diagnose <laughs> you in VR, but you know, he, that's just like one example he's giving you. Or, you know, uh, you meet, you can meet with a friend on the other side of the world in a VR space and kind of interact with them there. Um, it's actually, it's actually kind of like that movie coming out, Ready Player One, where it's like everyone enters this virtual world, and and of course, it's like a sh- super sci-fi movie coming out soon but that's kind of the vision that mark zuckerberg is describing and i don't know if or how long that might take or when people will be ready for it but you know it's certainly a possibility that's the side of vr that i think starts to scare people a little bit where it sounds um overly tech reliant and a little dystopian in some ways maybe a little bit disconnected which to your point earlier about maybe ar being the bigger market i'm kind of hoping that's the case it's a little bit more of a collaborative and social experience um if there is a company in this space that maybe benefits from some of the tailwinds with VR, I, and, and even then, it's like this is you know being qualified a little bit. Maybe it's HTC. Yeah, I mean HTC is in. I mean, they're 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 number three in the VR market right now with their Vive headset. But HTC, I mean, they've had so many troubles over the years, and this is. I mean, they they are making some progress with VR, but I, I'm not, I wouldn't be too interested in HTC overall as an investment just because. I mean, they're they've they've had a lot of trouble over the years. After I mean, they hit a big a long time ago in smartphones, but they've kind of fallen by the wayside on the smartphone market. So they're trying to bet big on VR, but it's such a young nascent market that you know. I mean, I, I do like Facebook. I personally own Facebook, and they are, they're they're betting pretty big on Oculus. Um, so I do think that they have some some potential here. Sony, I mean, VR and gaming in general is such a tiny part of Sony's business that even if VR takes off, it's hard to see it making a big dent in Sony's financials, uh, whereas Facebook eventually, you know, maybe could. So, Evan, one of the other big stories, and this is one that has just recently dropped, and <laughs> uh, it was kind of fun to have to prepare for it because the story changed so much even after the major news broke. Uh, it's something we haven't covered all that much, but net neutrality. Um, <laughs> this is something that kind of became impossible for us to ignore after the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality rules earlier this month, which removed regulation from the Obama administration. And maybe it's worth us kind of doing a quick refresher for those that haven't been following the story on exactly what net neutrality is. 
Oh yeah, it's a big topic. I mean, everyone's been very, uh, very mad about this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's this idea that the internet is kind of an open space, and data should generally be treated the same. Companies that provide access to the internet shouldn't be able to discriminate or charge different users, sites, platforms, etc., differently. Um, it's it's kind of this democratized and open look at the internet, um, which is. A lot to unpack, and we're going to try to do it in a couple of minutes here. Um, I think part of the trouble, like I mentioned before, with the net neutrality issue is that it's kind of constantly changing. So you had the FCC uh, vote down these measures, uh, basically move away from the regulations that were in place. And then days after that repeal, Republican Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee proposed a new law that would preserve some elements of the core net neutrality principles uh, from the bill text. It would prohibit blocking of lawful content, applications, services, and non-harmful devices. Also prohibit impairment or degradation of lawful internet traffic. So that is to say it would prevent blocking and throttling, and maybe we can explain that in a minute, but it would fall short of the original rules of net neutrality by not prohibiting internet service providers from charging websites or online services for prioritization. It also prevents states from imposing their own net neutrality-like rules. And so I hit on the kind of the three big tenets of net neutrality there, blocking, throttling, and prioritization. You want to run through those quick, Evan? I mean, on the on the prioritization piece, I think I, I, I will say that um, prioritization has actually been part of the internet for a really long time. I mean, it, it's, it's weird because like back in 2014, Netflix rose a big stink because they're paying these interchain or interconnection fees to internet service providers. Um, and then these got kind of characterized as quote unquote internet fast lanes. And it's really kind of a mischaracterization because, I mean, again, these have been there for forever. And it's just a way to, you know, there are fees associated with accessing a company's network. And these fees aren't actually a lot of money. Like it's a very small amount of money. I mean, it, you know, it's tens of millions of dollars, which sounds like a lot in absolute terms, but relative to like these companies' businesses, it's like a rounding error. And it just ensures good access to these networks to you know have good performance but you know a few years back when netflix kind of started making this public um complaint about it it got congress's attention it got the public's attention and said oh if there's this prioritization it's unfair and there is some truth to that because a startup can't really afford these same types of fees so then they might not be able to compete with a company like netflix in terms of delivering making sure the content gets to you and have good performance but i still think that like i don't know the the prioritization piece um is I don't think it's as bad as people thought, and, and kind of at the risk of sounding like a devil's advocate, I kind of overall I think that all the outrage is a little bit overhyped because the broader context is that these rules were only put into place in 2015 when they classified ISPs as common carriers under Title II of the Communications Act of 1934, and so in other words, the vast majority of the internet's history has been without these rules, and it's been just fine. Um, that being said, I. I do think that neutrality is important, and, it, and those rules were good because it basically prevents these companies from abusing their power, their market power, which there definitely is now the potential for. But you know, for most of the history, these companies have been kept in check by market forces. So, you know, I, I don't think that you know the worst case scenario that everyone thinks it's not like tomorrow, Comcast is going to charge you an extra three dollars to view a tweet, <laughs> you know, which is kind of like some of the extreme things you're seeing out there on the internet right now, like. What's going to happen now that Nintendo is dead? Well, it just goes back to the way it used to be, which you know is the way it's been for most of the internet's history. And I guess critics of the FCC's decision would say, 
well, there aren't a lot of players in the internet service provider space, so removing regulation could lead to some very anti-consumer outcomes. I will also add that that space is not exactly known for treating customers all that well to begin with. So, so thinking that they will continue to be benevolent when they have a lot of regulation pulled off of them uh, might be a little bit uh, idealistic, in my view. Um, looking at the current state of things, you know, excluding uh, the law that may be on the books uh, to slightly amend the rules, and just looking at FCC's repeal of these rules. I think the winners have to be the internet service providers with with net neutrality rules coming down. They have less regulation to deal with. Theoretically, it gives them room to block, throttle, prioritize traffic. So basically, just uh, exert preferences over how easy it is to access certain types of content. Um, I don't think they're going to actually do that. And and a lot of these providers, you know, AT and T, Verizon, have also come out and said, you know, we are believers in a free and open internet. Um, that's what they're saying now. You know, there's a possibility that they change their tune down the road when they see how they can make more money by doing that kind of stuff. Uh, but I doubt that anything would happen anytime soon. Certainly, anything dramatic, um, if they were to ultimately decide to do anything like that. Right. I mean, certainly this is like an oligopoly. Oligo- uh, it's an oligopoly. <laughs> so there's not a lot of companies that are in this space just because the barriers to entry are, are literally tens of billions of dollars to make these networks. So, I mean, I mean, the fact that there's not a lot of competition is probably like my main concern is because they do have particularly with this, these repeals, they have much more potential ability to abuse their power. And yeah, I mean, historically, they haven't really used it, and they're saying they won't use it now. I think, it, you know, I certainly think it's a good thing to make sure that they can't, which is why I think the, the rules were good while they were in place. But yeah, I mean, it, it's just going to be kind of up to them to see how they use this power. And I mean, I, I'm kind of, you know, I don't expect them to do like these terrible things immediately, but they do have the, the opportunity to do so. So, I mean, we just kind of have to hope <laughs> uh, that they don't just start gouging people. Yeah. And, and even to say that the FCC's repeal will definitely stay in place is kind of in question. There, there's so much in flux here because Senate Minority Leader uh, Democrat Chuck, Su- Chuck Schumer said that there will be a vote on a bill that would overturn the FCC's decision and reinstate net neutrality rules. There are also state attorney generals currently planning to sue the FCC to have the original rules reinstated. So there, this is kind of a tough story to really predict winners and losers or, or really what the what, what's going to be happening in the marketplace, just because it's so uncertain as to what the terms are going to be that these companies can operate on, uh, let alone will they choose to you know, take advantage of them. Right. Um, speaking of telecoms, uh, one of the other big news items from 2017, we saw Verizon scoop up Yahoo in June for $4.5 billion. And that kind of, in a weird way, brought an end to a certain era of the internet, right? I mean, Yahoo was one of the major early internet players. Uh, it ends their time as an independent company. While it wasn't the biggest tech deal of the year, um, it was kind of this sunset in, in a way. Oh, yeah. And especially, you have to wonder if they regret not selling to Microsoft all those years ago, which I don't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say it was in the neighborhood of like, 30 to 40 billion dollars <laughs> back where you know like 10 years ago when microsoft tried to buy yahoo and now they're selling for you know pennies on the dollar <laughs> yeah it's a it's a fraction of it uh so yahoo properties will uh well they have joined aol and huffington post under verizon's oath umbrella 
And the reason I think this is important is it's another instance of telecom companies trying to build out their offerings by building up their content businesses. And this is something we saw with AT&T and DirecTV in 2015. Uh, we saw AT&T attempt to do it again with Time Warner earlier this year. The Justice Department recently attempted a block, uh, attempted to block the $85 billion deal, citing antitrust laws. Uh, AT&T said they'll fight that decision. But kind of looking out, you know, we see a lot of these companies that provide access to content also deciding to move into content itself. What exactly do you think is going on there, Evan? I mean, the big, real, the first really big deal of this, when this kind of notion was, you know, the Comcast NBC deal from 2009 or almost 10 years ago at this point. Um, but I think the kind of underlying theme is that you know these telecom companies are really just trying to fight off commoditization because internet service is fundamentally a very highly commoditized service. I mean, if two companies can get service to your house, they have the infrastructure to do so. If they offer comparable speeds, then it's just a, a, a you know, battle over price and then a race to the bottom. So you know, there, there is this commoditization fear among ISPs because it is essentially a commoditized service. And they just don't want to be seen as nothing more than these dumb pipes. And they want to also own the content that goes through those pipes as opposed to just the pipes themselves as a way to kind of differentiate and vertically integrate. And there are certainly some antitrust concerns because, you know, they could theoretically, if they own the content, they could theoretically not give that content to their you know, competitors as a further way to kind of try to differentiate themselves. Uh, we haven't really seen that play out, um, particularly on, you know, since NBC is obviously one of the biggest media networks out there. And it's not like, it's not like NBC is only available on Comcast. Right. So th you know, there are some of these fears that, but they haven't really played out. But that's kind of the broader picture of like why these companies really want to do it. And even even T-Mobile is now, ironically, after like mocking all of their larger rivals for doing this, they're now doing it too. <laughs> Which you know they bought, they're buying a company um, to basically get into this online video streaming, um, in order to you know more bundling and and trying to like combine all these packages and stuff like that. But that's kind of you know the heart of why these companies are trying to do it. And we've seen so many deals like this happen already. It's it's kind of hard to imagine another one, just given the sticker price on some of these. You know, frankly, having already picked up Directv, I was a little surprised to see AT and T try to do it again uh, with Time Warner. But um, maybe this is kind of the new normal, and this is what we should expect from people that are providing access to content. Is you know, uh, looking to scoop up brands themselves. Um, Evan, I have a bunch of folks in the studio looking to get in. We have a bunch of people trying to tape before the holidays, so I think we are getting close to our time. I don't want to keep Chris Hill waiting, but <laughs> but never uh, want to make him mad. No, he's, no, he's angry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he will fight that in whatever he's about to record. Uh, but if I don't talk to you again before the holidays, enjoy your time in Austin and uh, enjoy uh, your time off. You too, man. Listeners, we have a couple of housekeeping notes before we close out the show. Uh, we just recapped some major notes from 2017, but there's a lot of stuff we missed. Uh, if you want more, we have Fool.com's recommended reading list. It's going to be a compilation of some of the best pieces on the site from the past year. All you need to do is write in industryfocus at Fool.com, and we'll send it along to you. Also, this was our last show before the holiday. We're actually going to be doing something a little bit different for the week between Christmas and New Year's. Rather than do individual shows that week, uh, the hosts are going to get together and do a four-part Industry Focus Award Show. Uh, we're trying out this new concept. We thought it'd be a fun, foolish way to wrap up the year. Let us know what you think. The first episode is going to go up on Tuesday of next week. Otherwise, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Uh, like I said, if you have any questions, any comments, anything like that, shoot them over at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass in 2017. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. <laughs>